God is good. All the time, God is good. That is a, a saying that many Christians say, and it is a saying that has been affirmed already this morning in our singing, in the reading of Psalm 100, where the psalmist says, The Lord is good. And we heard it in Mel's prayer, that confession, a very important confession. We talk about this in our searchers class, how foundational that is to our faith. God's goodness in all of creation. A good God created a good world, and He infused this world with beauty and order and harmony. And we see this in the opening of the Scriptures. We see this in the opening chapters of Genesis. Before the fall, before the curse, before our rebellion, we have this picture of God's shalom that comes out of His order out of his goodness. But we don't live on that side of the fall. We live on the side of the fall where chaos has entered into and broken up the order. So last week, a week ago, I had the opportunity to speak at a memorial service for a young man. He's 25 years old, and he died of cancer. And he was a brilliant young man really didn't have a working faith. He had kind of a hodgepodge of different beliefs. And we had some conversations. We had a conversation about a month before he died about life and about death, about faith, things of that nature. And he shared with me an analogy about life that uh, I won't go into detail now. I'll bring that up maybe in a later sermon for another day. But it hinged on this idea of order and chaos. And I was able to speak into that at the memorial service because what he said really spoke to me and, and brought back some images of the wisdom books in the Old Testament. So the Jewish view of the world, the world is built on the order and the wisdom of God. God's wisdom sustains the creation. And we see this especially in the book of Proverbs. There is a Proverbs world that is so rational it's so ordered. If I do A, then B will happen. So on the positive side in the Proverbs, if I seek wisdom, if I tell the truth, if I choose my friends wisely, then my life will be blessed. On the other side of that, if I chase after folly, if I engage with deceit, if I run around with the wrong crowd, then my life will be full of pain and strife, and disorder. But as it turns out, the Proverbs are really about probabilities. Because most of the time, most of the time, if we take care of our business, if we seek righteousness, then we will be blessed physically, emotionally, financially. Now, those things come to us. But the writers of the Old Testament, the inspired writers, they realized that we don't live in a Proverbs world. It's an important word for us. It's important to think about that order. But we don't live in a Proverbs world. We live in a world where chaos can come at any time. That's why we have the book of Ecclesiastes. That's why we have the book of Job. That's what Job is all about, this, this book of Hebrew poetry, these conversations that Job has with his friends. 
Job and his friends, they live in that Proverbs world. Do good, good things will happen. Do bad, bad things will happen. And all of a sudden, they're trying to wrestle with, well, why are all these things happening to Job? Why is he suffering so? He's done everything right in, his, in the book. Everything. And yet, the chaos of a fallen world has come upon him. And he, he finds himself in a world where things happen that don't make a lot of sense. We hear this in Scripture. We hear these kinds of questions. Why do the wicked prosper? The psalmist asks. Why do the innocent suffer so? Or the modern question, why do bad things happen to good people? And it's in those moments when the chaos hits us, the chaos of this fallen world, where we have to cling to that foundational confession that in the midst of chaos and evil and injustice, God is good. God is good all the time. Well, this really comes together in this parable we're going to look at in Luke chapter 13. So if you want to turn in the, to the gospel of Luke, we'll be in the first nine verses of chapter 13. And this parable falls in this larger section of the gospel of Luke that begins all the way back in chapter 9, chapter 9, verse 51. You have this long section in Luke that lasts about nine chapters where Jesus is, is up in, in Galilee, he's up at the sea, he's ministering to the people there, healing them. You have the great miracles that take place there on the sea. And then in chapter 9, verse 51, it says that Jesus sets his face toward Jerusalem. He turns his, his face resolutely toward Jerusalem. He is going to a cross, and you have these, these chapters of him making his way to Jerusalem. And what we have in those, that section is some very weighty sayings of Jesus, including this parable that we're about to look at today. This parable comes out of a report that someone gives him of some chaos that has happened in Jerusalem, presumably uh, Jerusalem. But Jesus answers this report in a very elusive way, but also an instructive way. Those questions that we have about chaos and why bad things happen to good people, well, those are important questions, but those are not the most important question, as we'll see in this parable. So let's hear the Word of God from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 13, beginning in verse 1. There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans, whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the Tower of Siloam fell and killed them, do you think they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent you will all likewise perish. And he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, or the gardener, 
Look, for three years now I've come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure. Then it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. May God bless the reading of his word. Well, I want to ask the children here today, have you ever heard of Aesop's fable, the the grasshopper and the ant? Have you heard of that? I'm going to read it to you. And as I read it to you, I want you to put yourself in the place of the grasshopper. Has there been a situation in your life that's similar to what's going on with the grasshopper? So hear this fable. In a field, one summer's day, a grasshopper was hopping about, chirping and singing to his heart's content. A group of ants walked by, grunting as they struggled to carry plump kernels of corn. Where are you going with those heavy things? asked the grasshopper. Without stopping, the first ant replied, To our anthill, this is the third kernel I've delivered today. Well, why not come and sing with me, teased the grasshopper, instead of working so hard. We are helping to store food for the winter, said the ant, and think you should do the same. Winter is far away, and it is a glorious day to play, said the grasshopper. But the ants went on their way and continued their hard work. The weather soon turned cold. All the food lying in the field was covered with a thick white blanket of snow that even the grasshopper could not dig through. Soon the grasshopper found itself dying of hunger. He staggered to the ant's hill and saw them handing out corn from the stores they had collected in the summer. He begged them for something to eat. What? cried the ants in surprise. Haven't you stored anything away for the winter? What in the world were you doing last summer? Well, I didn't have any time to store any food, complained the grasshopper. I was so busy playing music that before I knew it, the summer was gone. The ants shook their heads in disgust, turned their backs on the grasshopper, and went on their work. Well, children, did you you think of any situation that was just like the grasshopper? Have you ever had a situation where your parents told you to go and clean your room? And you said, okay, I'll do it later, and you get distracted, and you forget, and then your parents tell you again, go and clean your room, I said, and you get a little distracted, you put it off, you put it off. Well, that's just like this fable here, this fable about procrastination, and there comes a point when there are consequences for putting something off that your parents ask you to do. Well, the parable of the grass, or The fable of the grasshopper and the ant is a very harsh fable. But I think it matches the tone of a very harsh parable that Jesus tells, an important word for the church to hear today. It's a harsh warning for Israel. So for centuries in Israel's history, there's been this pattern of failure to turn to God, a pattern of failure to place their trust in God. These are God's chosen people. They are chosen for God's rescue mission to the world. And yet these are also a group of people who 
where we can catalog what they did, and some of this will hit a little too close to home for us, but these are the people who grumbled in the desert whenever God was leading them. These are the people who cowered in fear when God had led them to the promised land and said, go and take it, but then they heard the report of the spies that there were giants in the land and walled cities, and the people cowered down. These are the people who wanted God to give them a king instead of trusting in God, their king. These are the ones who chased after other gods over and over again. These are the ones who failed to take care of the weakest among them. These are the ones who failed to heed the warnings of the prophets. In fact, they killed them. These are the ones who ultimately ended up in exile, being handed over from from one nation to another, all because they failed to place their trust in God. And now Jesus comes. God in the flesh, giving them one final warning. Winter is coming. The winter of judgment is at hand, and the people have a choice before them. They can continue the pattern of going their own way, or they can submit to the true king and trust and obey. And this really is the heart of this exchange between Jesus and this person who comes up to him with this report about the Galileans and this slaughter. Uh, The people are interested in this question about God's justice. Why were the Galileans murdered by the Romans under Pilate? Was it because they were sinners? Was it because they were greater sinners than the rest of the Galileans? And embedded in this question is the larger question. Do we live in a Proverbs world or not? Do we live in a world where do good, good things happen, do bad, bad things happen? Well, as it turns out, Jesus is not very interested in that question. He's dismissive of that. He says, no, 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 no. That's not the way the world is set up. That's an illusion. That's not the way things are really really run. You're missing the point. You're not reading the times. Winter is coming. Time is of the essence. And unless you repent, you're going to end up like those Galileans. Or you're going to end up like that group of people in Jerusalem for whom the tower fell upon. Jesus does not mince words in this parable. He's not being cryptic. This is a call to repentance. This is a call to turn to God. But as the story of Jesus unfolds, and as we look even into the future, into the book of Acts, we see that there are many in Israel who failed to heed this warning. They continue this pattern of living their own way. They live as if they have all the time in the world. And the question is, does that sound familiar to us this morning? Is that a foreign concept to us here in Austin, Texas in 2019? Yes, this is a parable about impending judgment on Israel. But make no mistake about it, there is a universal call here in this parable of the barren fig tree, a universal call to the people of God of all ages in the church, the call to repent, the call to turn to God, the call to live as a people who recognize that we really do live on borrowed time every day. We are living on borrowed time. Because the truth of the matter is, we don't live in a Proverbs world. 
The probabilities are there. But we don't live in a Proverbs world. We live in a world where towers still fall on people. We live in a world where the innocent are still murdered. We live in a world where we are here today and gone tomorrow. We live in a world where bad news can hit us at any time, in doctor's offices, in our boss's office, on the couch face-to-face with our spouse, on the telephone with our grown adult children. We don't have to go and seek chaos out. Chaos will find us. So what time do we think we have? And yet, even with the warning signs and the potential for danger, many of us, most of us, live our lives as if we have all the time in the world to surrender to God. We'll give ourselves over to God after we take care of our business. We'll finish school first, and then we'll give everything we have to God. We'll find a spouse. We'll have a family. We'll take care of our finances, and then we will surrender to God. We'll check all these boxes off of our list and we procrastinate our devotion to God. And if we look around us, the leaves may be turning red. The air gets a little chilly out there. Winter is upon us. What time do we think we have? Israel had been given warnings for centuries. And in the parable of the barren fig tree, the owner is ready to cut that fig tree down. The fig tree has been a symbol of Israel, even back into the Old Testament, deep into the Old Testament. The owner is ready for a reckoning for this tree that does not bear fruit. The owner is ready for judgment. And then the gardener comes, and just as an aside I wouldn't spend a lot of time on trying to mix and match and to try to figure out who represents who in this parable. We're talking about God the Father or God the Son. It's an analogy. And if you press an analogy, any analogy, it's going to break down at some point. But what we do get in this parable is a picture of God. We get a window into God's character. The God who has been patient with Israel for so long. The God that continues to be patient with Israel but a God whose patience is wearing thin. And instead of immediate judgment, God is going to delay. Give it another year, the gardener says. Let me fertilize it. Let me tend to this fig tree. And if it bears fruit in a year, wonderful. If it doesn't, then cut it down. Israel has been shown great mercy And I think the ministry of Jesus is part of this delay. We have a final word here to Israel. God with us has come, but winter is still coming. And the time for procrastination is coming to an end. Israel is going to have to make a choice. Turn to God now or face eternal consequences. It's a hard word. But it's an important word for the church to hear today. This word of grace and this word of warning for the church. Because God does continue to delay judgment for his people. 
And we think about what we have been celebrating this morning as we think about what we're going to celebrate here at the table here in a moment, what God has done through Jesus at the cross, what he has done at the empty tomb, the mercies upon mercies that he has poured out upon his people. It's, it's difficult to measure. It's difficult to even fathom the love that he has shown to us, the mercy that he has given to us, the grace that he continues to shower upon his people. But one thing God has not given us is time. He has not given us guaranteed time. Chaos can strike at any moment. And to procrastinate our surrender to God is to take an enormous risk that has eternal consequences. So maybe this morning you've been on the fence about some decisions that you have before you. Or maybe this morning you, you come here, maybe you've been a believer for a long time, maybe you've been a believer for decades, and yet there's still, there's still something we're not surrendering. And I think every single person in this room can locate that piece of ourselves that we're still holding on to, that we can't quite give up. I guess the question this morning is, what exactly is holding us back? May we hear the sense of urgency in the parable of the barren fig tree for those who have ears to hear this morning. God is good. All the time, God is good. And yet he calls on his people to trust and obey him. He wants every part of us. He wants all of us. What can we surrender to him this morning? We have a song of invitation now, and it is a time to respond. And for the vast majority of us, it will be here in the pews, thinking about these words, thinking about this parable, thinking about our own lives and how this word connects to our lives today. And we have the opportunity to Respond and perhaps recommit ourselves to surrendering to God more fully. There may be those this morning who are on this journey, you're at the beginning of the journey, and you're ready to be baptized, to surrender, to be buried with Christ, to be raised to walk in newness of life with Him. We can accommodate that this morning. If you have been here for a while, you've been immersed and you've you look around and you see what God is doing among us here at Brentwood Oaks, and you would like to join in with us uh, to place membership with this worshiping body. Uh, now is the time to do that as we stand and as we sing.